Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. This is episode 85 of August 25th, 2022. As always, if you want to follow the Consumer Choice Center, you can do that on Twitter, at Consumer Choice C, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, all the classics. You know them. We even have a Telegram channel, so do check that out as well. My guest this week is Alberto Mingardi. He's the director general of the Italian free market think tank Istituto Bruno Leoni. He is also associate professor of the history of political thought at IULM University in Milan and a presidential scholar in political theory at Chapman University. He's also an adjunct fellow at the Cato Institute and blogs at EconLog. With Alberto, we'll be talking about Italy's political crisis, what is going on with the resignation of, uh, of current uh, Prime Minister Mario Draghi, and then in one month from now there will be new elections. So we also talked about what he thinks should be the priorities for Italy in that election cycle. Also in this episode, Spain's government wants to ban automated customer service and France bans fossil fuel ads. So a lot of bans to discuss this week. So let's get started. The Spanish government proposes a law banning automated customer service. Already a few months ago, the, the, the Spanish government had suggested such a law, and uh, it is now in the legislative process. Um, so the automated customer service things, we I think we all know them. It, they're not particularly pleasant, to be honest. You, know, you call the customer service number, and it will be asked, first of all, which language you want, and then what type of service uh, it, it is that, that you want. Of course, these automated things, they're not great, um, but I'm not entirely sure um, what customer service on the phone will look like once um, once this this law goes through. Um, because uh, the, the customer service experience is also related on the, the filtering. So how long you wait depends on how we, they'll be able to filter you through. If you call the regular office and you're asking for a specific department, you will have people on the phone if you're just calling a, a government department, for instance. Um, but then they give you through to two, three people because they don't know exactly who will be best able to answer uh, your questions. And this is something that if you automate it is a lot easier. If I'm calling an airline, um, I might be calling about lost baggage. I might be calling about refunds. I might be calling about just to get a schedule or book a ticket. All of these are different departments, especially in large airlines. Um, and if you have a person immediately on the phone, and that obviously isn't uh, isn't as easy for them to figure out and probably will elongate um, waiting times overall. But as per the... Um, as per the reasoning here, uh, Consumer Affairs Minister in Spain, Alberto Garzón, said customer services far too often cause endless headaches for Spanish families because far too many companies create bureaucratic labyrinths to stop you from exercising your right to service. Um, well, obviously, I mean, not every company is very easy to, to engage with. Um, I usually try to use the chat function because those are increasingly better and easier to use. And ultimately, if you spend a lot of time on the phone um, where you have to be aware on when somebody's finally answering, you might as well use the WhatsApp chat option or whatever the integrated website chat options are. Uh, the article by Euronews about Spain's um, new law uh, says providers of basic services such as utilities, phone and internet services would have to offer customer service 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. All other firms would be obliged to provide customer service during normal working hours. 
all customer complaints would also have to be responded to within 15 days with a provision allowing each of Spain's autonomous communities to cut that down even further if they choose to do so. And then there's um, companies with more than 250 workers uh, will, uh, in the utility providers uh, uh, level at least, uh, they will have to adhere by this, um, especially if their turnover exceeds 50, over 50 million uh, exceeds 50 million euros a year. Fines for breaking the law would range from 150 euros to 100,000 euros. And um, and so this is very interesting, obviously, because um, the rules uh, the rules will will show exactly what Spain um, what Spain's experience will be. I sort of like this because at least on an if we do this on an EU level, then the the, the chaos descends on all of us equally. But if it's just one member state, then we can sort of learn from experience, and that's sort of the good thing about the system of subsidiarity, where each member states get to make their own stakes or uh, find new advantages or better policies. So I'm not convinced that this will actually help improve customer service um, because, well, if it's shitty through uh, an automated uh, system, then it's probably not going to not gonna get much better with people on the line um, who don't necessarily uh, work in the department uh, uh, responsible for you. I've dealt with customer service of actual people on the phone that didn't want to provide me the service or a refund. So if the if the company's dead, dead set on not providing you a service, uh, chances are that the people on the phone will probably not provide that either. Uh, that's just my theory. Let's move on to the next issue, and that is France banning uh, ads for fossil fuels. So uh, whether it's TV, radio, or newspapers, you won't be allowed to, to advertise uh, fossil fuel uh, products anymore. Everything from uh, your petrol station to your natural gas provider. Not that in France you have an awful amount of choices in the first place, but well, still. Um, and so uh, this uh, this ban had already been uh, planned for in August 2021. The new climate law in France. Um, and, uh, and 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 one article about it says financial investments and communication-related sponsorship do not come under the ban and therefore are still legal. It is also legal to advertise decarbonized hydrogen fuels that have at least 50% renewable energy content and comply with greenhouse gas emissions reduction criteria and gas supply with 50% biogas content and then fines between 20,000 and 100,000 euros for those who break the law. I'm not entirely sure um, uh, if that is really the effect I don't think that seeing an ad on TV for a petrol station brand is making people drive more I think people drive in the first place and what these companies try to achieve is make you fuel up at their petrol station I think this is still sort of um, vertical competition I'm never sure with these terms exactly um, but it's definitely not creating new customers for the product it's more about um, which brand you pick I mean, it's a bit like supermarkets, right? I mean, the supermarket ad is not trying to tell you to go to a supermarket. You likely already go into a supermarket. It's just about the brand that you will be choosing to do that. And that will be achieved with a loyalty point system or better prices or, I don't know, a cool mascot so your kids like it. I mean, it's different things that these companies do. And the petrol station ads I've seen also uh, sort of on that level. And when it comes to, I think, natural gas, I mean... Best case scenario, they advertise on the price and about how green they are. And it's not like you're going to switch to natural gas because you saw an ad. Uh, you're going to switch your entire flat or your house to natural gas because you saw that ad. It's just about the provider. 
And we want natural gas to be cheaper. Apparently the profiteering is the big problem now. So I don't quite see how advertising cheaper rates would be a problem. And then advertising that natural gas uh, is produced in a more environmentally friendly option there again i don't see the issue why that would be illegal so i think this is a very performative uh, another one of those very performative environmental rules where at least i guess we're saying it's a bit like the simpsons meme uh, i'm helping so i guess because uh, it's one of those and uh, well it's france being france and banning things you know you gotta you gotta ban at least a few thousand things a year otherwise i mean how good of a government can you be uh, in in paris Anyway, let's move on to the guest of the week. We have Alberto Mingardi. He's the director general of the Italian free market think tank Istituto Bruno Leoni. And he's also an associate professor of history of political thought at IULM University in Milan. Uh, so he'll be talking to us about what's going on in Italian politics. Um, and so we have uh, about a month until the next election. So we quizzed Alberto on all things Italian politics. So take it away. So, Alberto, thank you so much for joining the Consumer Podcast. Um, as a European audience, we are used to Italian prime ministers not having too much time in office. And this one is no exception. Only a year and a half that Mario Draghi was in office. Was he unpopular um, in the public or was he just unpopular within the political scene in Italy? What led to his resignation? I think uh, Mario Draghi's resignation was mainly uh, the result of the physiology of Italy's parliamentary life. Uh, so Draghi was called to be prime minister uh, in a moment in which um, the parliamentary term uh, was already you know, in, in its second half. Uh, so elections were due actually early next year. Uh, and the only thing that happened was that political parties had a little skirmish and Draghi decided to resign as a consequence to that. Hence, uh, we are voting in September 2022 instead of March 2023. It really doesn't change much. Uh, actually, I think in, in some sense, uh, um, uh, it is even uh, better uh, because if we were voting in March 2023, clearly, uh, uh, you know, the next budget law will have been uh, totally motivated by political parties seeking consent uh, in the consensus I'm sorry, in, in, in the country. So uh, in a way, this is more or less the physiology of the Italian uh, parliamentary term. When it comes to the popularity of Mario Draghi, Draghi is a fairly popular prime minister, uh, even though he had um, a, a kind of a, of a strange uh, communication strategy. Uh, when he took office, his line was, uh, I'm not going to talk unless and until I do have results to showcase to the Italian population. Uh, but then, of course, you cannot be prime minister and not giving interviews. So Draghi started to give uh, plenty of press conferences. Uh, he talked a lot with journalists. Uh, he, he didn't talk much uh, with the Italian population in things like, you know, a TV program in which a journalist was interviewing him or anything like that. Uh, his popularity is fairly high. Um, but certainly, you know, it tells you something uh, that all the polls 
are basically uh, claiming uh, that the first party at the Italian election would be Giorgio Meloni, Fratelli d'Italia, the Brothers of Italy, which is the only party that did not support the Draghi government. Right. I think that th- that does make sense. And, and, and interestingly, the alternative parties will be um, a big uh, conversation point. I read this piece in The Guardian by Lorenzo Marsili, an Italian philosopher. He titles Italy's loss of Mario Draghi is a warning to progressives across Europe. And he bemoans in his article in The Guardian, he says that Mario Draghi was the examples of the example of a technocrat that just cannot work for a country such as Italy. Is that an assessment you you will also share um, the garden, obviously coming from a f- specific political viewpoint. Um, but uh, but yeah, is this something? Is this something you would say? Uh, you would. Well, I didn't with? read the article, so I cannot tell you. Um, I, I think that that you know the the, the Draghi's government uh, was a strange example of caretaker government, uh, particularly if if you compare it. Uh, with with other uh, quote-unquote technocratic governments we had before. Uh, Italy has more of a tradition of that than any other European country. So we basically started in 1993 and then 1995 and then 2011. Uh, And so far what happened was basically um, when the country needed uh, to solve some big uh, public finance issue, Uh, we called on a technocrat because political parties uh, felt they were not strong enough to either attempt to cut spending, which never quite happens, or to raise taxes. Uh, And so you need somebody who's not a career politician to do that. And and somehow that helps in in shifting the blame from the Italian political class to this guy. I mean, an interesting case in point is clearly Mario Monti, who stayed in government exactly the same uh, amount of days as Mario Draghi, basically 18 months, both of them. Well, uh, Draghi came to be prime minister in in very different circumstances. Uh, He came to be prime minister because the European Union uh, went for next generation EU, so this package of aid, um, which was supposed to help countries to recover from the COVID-19 crisis. And of course, Italy was hit the most by the COVID-19 crisis. So we had uh, more of this aid than, than, than other member states. Uh, so in spite of the fact the aid package was negotiated by the government before, by the government led by Mr. Giuseppe Conte, uh, well, somehow uh, that government uh, that that was basically a left of center with an emphasis on the left uh, uh, government uh, was deemed uh, as um, uh, not particularly trustworthy in, in managing all these resources. Uh, and so what happened was that the government collapsed, the majority of the government collapsed, and uh, uh, in order to finish the parliamentary term, more or less, but also to make sure that this money was actually coming uh, to the European government to be spent, uh, Mario Draghi was called by the head of state, by Mr. Mattarella, and he accepted to be uh, the Italian prime minister. So uh, he was not a technocrat whose job was to cut spending, but his job was actually uh, to manage uh, you know, the, the greatest uh, increase in public spending you can picture in years. Uh, for this reason, I think, Draghi was actually fairly popular among the political class. 
uh, fairly popular within the political class until uh, in December last year, he said that more or less his mission was accomplished uh, because he managed the um, vaccination campaign and that, that was clearly managed very well. I mean, we may have issues with uh, how the Italian government managed COVID, uh, broadly speaking, but when it comes to, you know, um, bringing vaccines to people, Italy was efficient in a way that um, most people did not expect, at least I did not expect. Um, and uh, besides that, you know, all the paperwork for, for this uh, European aid was done. So Draghi in December claimed that, you know, he, he did what he was asked to do. And uh, in a way which was, I think, inevitable given the circumstances, but not very lucky with the benefit of, of insight, uh, he said, you know, I'll, I'll be happy to be the next president of the republic. I'll be happy to be the next head of state. And he said that more or less like I'm saying this to you right now. Um, and then the Italian political class revolted. Uh, basically, it was some kind of a parliamentary revolt. I mean, people in parliament signaled very strongly to their parties that they preferred to go on with Mattarella, that was, quote-unquote, one of them, uh, so another career politician and somebody who spent uh, his own life, really, in parliamentary institution, uh, then to appoint a technocrat as head of state. There was actually a precedent for that. Carlo Azeglio Ciampi was a technocrat prime minister, former government, governor of the Bank of Italy, uh, became head of state uh, in, um, in the late night, in 2000. Uh, but Ciampi had a very different course of sonorum. He stayed longer in politics. He spent something like seven years in the Italian political life and he came to be appreciated by many. Uh, Draghi sounded uh, arrogant to the parliament, and, and so the parliament went uh, another way. I don't know if it was a wise decision. In many ways, it would have been wiser to have a man of the reputation and prestige um, of, of, my, like, of Mario Draghi's um, as head of state, but, but still, that, that, that was the choice that was made by Italian MPs. Uh, so the circumstances of these technocrats were, were very different and, you know, you cannot associate Draghi with austerity, uh, with spending cuts, with not even with free market reforms. I mean, he, uh, the only very shy and timid uh, liberalization he attempted were basically in, in the last month of his um, activity as a prime minister and were certainly not going to have a strong impact on the Italian GDP. So uh, I, I don't think, you know, the, the usual association of technocracy and neoliberalism, I mean, is, is appropriate in these circumstances. Alberto, I have to admit to you, Italy is a very fascinating country to me. Uh, um, if, I, if, we just, if we just take out several examples, it's so fascinating how the country has polar opposites uh, uh, running at the same time. It has, an, it has great competition on the rail market, a liberalized system for high-speed rail that is very efficient, uh, to my surprise, I have to admit. And then simultaneously, it runs an airline into the ground and wastes billions of euros on it. When we have our plethora of guests on this podcast, and it's just before the elections of their member country, um, I'm always curious to ask them, um, 
because obviously we have the most reasonable guests on this podcast, um, is uh, the discrepancy between what is con considered important from a policy perspective in the election. So what is discussed as sort of the most important burning issues for the country and what you think should actually be on the agenda? Like what is the important issue in your view that Italy should address and should discuss in this election? And what is actually um, being discussed in the TV debates and uh, uh, wherever people um, have those uh, conversations? So what would you say? Well, well it's uh, actually a question I cannot answer because the TV debates didn't start yet. Uh, so um, it's, it, you know, it's an electoral campaign and because it's August, it will be, it will be extremely short uh, in terms of televised debates and, and that's good enough. Um, political quote-unquote programs were presented. Uh, as you know, basically these electoral programs are a collection of uh, good intentions uh, uh, put on paper once every five years. I say something which is the following. Uh, in spite of um, the Italian political class always Uh, trying not to touch this particular issue, particularly when they are in government, so when parliament is open and running, uh, fiscal issues are coming back, and particularly uh, tax issues are coming back. Uh, this is largely because the uh, centre-right coalition is making um, a flag Uh, out of its uh, out of its flat tax proposal, which may not be doable as they propose it, but nonetheless is is a nice uh, catchword. Um, but still, I think that that is something that tells us um, uh, that the tax burden perceived by Italian citizens is is still unbearable, uh, according to most of them, and um, it, it is kind of a scandal that everybody knows that uh, that parliamentary commissions are formed and they do a splendid work in you know surveying all the 100 taxes Italians are paying and uh, focusing on how the Italian tax system is too heavy on workers vis-a-vis -vis other categories of citizens and so on and so forth but at the end of the day nothing happens uh, so you know um, The idea of a flat tax for Italy was the first time launched by Silvio Berlusconi when he entered it in politics in 1994. So it's basically 30 years ago. Uh, and the very fact that the same proposal is still appealing today uh, tells you the extent to which uh, the problems of the countries uh, have not been addressed. That, that, that is indeed fascinating because having spent my fair amount of time in France and following French politics most closely, I would say. Um, in France, this is not quite the same assessment. The taxes are, I, I assume, sort of comparable, the tax system comparable to that of Italy, but nobody seems to think that there's anything wrong with it. Um, and, and, and French politics keeps uh, um, aggravating the situation. And in Italy, there seems to be then a different, um, different approach. Does that mean, in your view, that... Uh, the country is redeemable. Do you see a way forward where Italy has eventually this great reformer maybe coming out of this election um, and uh, and gets the country back on track from the numbers you see? Is that is that possible? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? 
Well, uh, when it comes to the country, I'm an optimist, uh, uh, not because of politics, but because I think that, uh, I mean, Italy is a country with phenomenal businessmen and entrepreneurs. Um, if you uh, go around and, and shop for plenty of, of niche products, uh, they, lots of them are Italian, well, not Italian in the sense of 100% made in Italy, of course, but uh, brought to the market by an Italian company. Um, German cars are for a fair percentage Italian as well. So uh, I think, you know, the, the extent to which um, Italian entrepreneurs have been creative and um, efficient in the past and the extent to which also, I mean, to be fair, Italian workers uh, are still... Uh, you know, very cautious and um, and proud of of doing something well, uh, which is deep rooted attitude in the country. Uh, that is what kept Italy afloat for forever. Uh, even though, if you look at the uh, public finance number or uh, the uh, rules book, uh, this should not have been the case. Um, the problem we do have, I think, is is that you know that that's a myth, and the myth is that Italy cannot be governed and cannot be changed. That's not true. Uh, if I think, even in my lifetime, you know, we had some very ineffective governments, but we also had some effective governments. I mean, the two governments led by Romano Prodi, the government led by Mario Monti. You may like or dislike the solutions they proposed and the measures they implemented, but these were very effective governments. These were governments that did, you know, a, a fair share of what they proposed uh, in uh, in the past. And one of the reasons for that is that the Italian um, top civil service, I mean, the, the people who really understand uh, how laws are made, uh, tended to be aligned with this government and share their own priorities and views. The problem with, with the right in Italy since 1994 is the, um, well, uh, to put it bluntly, the lack of uh, quality political personnel. Uh, so, and that's understandable. There is some sort of a taboo in being associated with right of center parties. So, you know, if you're a if you're a very prominent lawyer or if you're a university professor or if you're a top jurist in the public administration, you're okay in running for election with the left. That, that, that's, that's, it's a good thing to put on your CV. Uh, but if you run with the right, you know, it's, it, you're kind of, uh, you know, dirting your, your own resume and, and, and so you don't do that. Uh, so uh, what's going to be happening, I think, this time, I, I think it's pretty clear that the right will win uh, a, a very wide majority. I mean, they will have uh, a strong command of parliament. Um, the biggest party this time will certainly be Giorgio Meloni's brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia. They will capitalize on the fact they've been in opposition ever since 2011. So, you know, they're not... Uh, somehow tainted with anything that happened and was bad in Italy in, in the last uh, 11 years. Uh, I think the um, Matteo Salvini Northern League is certainly going to be 
losing lots of votes. I mean, the last time we voted for European elections, Salvini got something close to 30%. Now he's pulled around 13%. So, you know, he lost plenty of votes, most of them to uh, the brothers of Italy. And I have no idea of how Mr. Berlusconi is going to be doing. Um, the poll says around 7 8%. My gut feeling is 4 or 5 um, but the problem these guys are going to be having is that the day in which they'll be in government, uh, they will lack uh, people capable enough to implement, you know, whatever vision for the future of Italy uh, Miss Meloni has. I mean, even these days, Italian newspapers are, you know, playing the game of who's going to be the treasury minister, who's going to be the foreign affairs minister, and that sort of stuff. And, and you know, th- these are open uh, questions, and, uh, and and the answer um, is not straightforward. Of course, there are a couple of, of good and sensible people in any party, really, um, but there are very few, and... Uh, and I think the problem is going to be aggravated by the fact that the next Italian parliament uh, is is going to be way smaller because the number of parliamentarians was cut. So instead of having 1,000, we will have basically 600. And of course, you know, by reducing the number, uh, paradoxically, uh, you need uh, a good share of, of, of very capable people. And, and I'm not so sure we will have them uh, in the parliament. So... You know, I, I think one of the reasons why I'm not particularly concerned with, with this election is that, you know, many people are writing uh, op-eds in the international press on the tragedy of Giorgio Meloni becoming prime minister. Well, if it happens or not, but, um, it, you know, I, I don't think there is over there um, um, the um, human capital necessary to achieve lasting uh, change. And, and, and that's a problem because, of course, you know, it, it creates this cycle of uh, the Italians voting basically every time for the guys who weren't in government before, always dissatisfied, particularly with the right, the right over-promising and underachieving um, over and over and over. And, and basically the, the Italian political system... Uh, never quite stabilizing at least uh, at least in the last 30 years not so much in terms of you know having uh, a dominant political figure certainly Berlusconi was there uh, but around strong party structure uh, that at the end of the day you need to govern and uh, I mean this is why I mean some, some of the countries that accomplished reforms in the last uh, 30 30 years uh, were countries in which the political parties were rooted and strong enough uh, to be able to influence the way in which uh, you know the state works. So that was very thorough analysis. I think we learned a lot here. I really also appreciated the way you said earlier that uh, Italy is still on track because of its people and despite of its government. I, I think that was uh, that was very interesting and and and, and good framing. Uh, Alberto Mengardi, this is as much time as we have for today. Um, I think. All the listeners will uh, continue to follow the elections because, I mean, Italy is a, is a major player in Europe. And it's about a month to go from the time that this uh, interview airs, about a month to go to the Italian election. So thank you so much for your insights. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Istituto Bruno Leoni at IST Bruno Leoni on Twitter and follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice. See, as always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have to learn.